Up until this moment, we talked about what was going on at UVA and in the nation before coeducation. We discussed the institutional, political, and legal changes that had set the stage for the arrival of women. But in this episode, we're going to hear more about the individual stories of the women in the class of 74 and catch a glimpse into what life was like for them when they arrived on grounds. You're listening to Gritty Women, and I'm your host, Giovanna Doliveda. Warning, this episode contains some adult content. When I interviewed UVA alumni, one word kept coming up. The men had been used to rolling. Roll up the road. Rolling. Rolling down the road. Rolling. Rolling was a long-standing practice at UVA before women were admitted into the college. It went something like this. Men would jump in their car or their friend's car or any car they could find and drive over or roll to Mary Washington, Sweetbriar, Mary Baldwin, and other women's colleges. The guys would check the girls out of their dorms, take them out, and then drive them back to their dorms at the end of the day. Betty McGee, who we heard from in the last episode, goes into detail about her experience with rolling when she was at Mary Washington. Remember, Betty transferred from Mary Washington into UVA School of Education in 1969. At Mary Washington, someone would have a boyfriend and they would call up and say, there's a dance or Midwinter's is coming up or Easter's. Can you get dates for my friends? Sometimes they were fraternity brothers. So you would go up and down the hall and say, you know, John wants me to get a date for William, Sam and Tom. Uh, UVA students would roll up the road in a questionable car, sometimes a sports car, six to a car, uh, come in, meet the house mother in the dorm, sign their name and sign out their date. You had to wear a um, sports coat and a tie to appear at the dorm to check out your date. So they would go (laughs) one car load The same coat and tie came in six times uh, to check us out. They only had brought one tie among them, and they all switched around to come in and uh, sign us out. And so they would be blind dates. You'd all go out and climb in this car. When women wanted to spend the whole weekend at UVA, they sometimes took the bus to Charlottesville. I asked Betty where they stayed while they were visiting. There was approved housing. So when you signed out, you signed a three-by-five card that said you were going to Miss uh, Annie Jones's house on Rugby Avenue or, you know, some little street there close to the university. Widowed ladies, old maids uh, had a spare bedroom and they were approved housing. They were on the approved housing list for Mary Washington. So you had a specific address and a phone number and you signed out and you went down there, your date met you at the bus station. You went out, you had something to eat or a movie, and he took you back to that approved housing. You see, most of the women that dated the fraternity brothers, uh, young women in 1967, 68, did not admit to sleeping with the person they were engaged to. So they stayed at approved housing. They slept on the sofa at the fraternity house. They stayed at his apartment. He slept on the sofa and then they got pregnant and got married. So, you know, must have been a miracle. 
Rolling was a central part of the dating culture at UVA before 1970. And when college students date, well, they sometimes end up having sex. Some were concerned that rolling was promoting a type of hookup culture where men and women were only interacting with each other on the weekend and oftentimes in a party setting. Richard Orion, a student at the time, wrote about this concern in the Cavalier Daily in 1968. The stud Cavalier studies during the week and engages in whatever sexual activity that he can on the weekend because he knows that he will not have to face his weekend actions on Monday. The female sex is debased to the point where a girl no longer exists as an individual human being, but simply exists for the satisfaction of the cavalier. Richard's statement is a bit of an exaggeration. Rowling did not always have a sole sexual purpose. Betty, for example, knew many people who were going steady with their dates, and she herself would also roll down the road to spend time with a law school student who she said she was madly in love with. Another issue with Richard's comment is that it promotes the idea that women have no agency over their sexual choices and are being objectified simply because they have casual sex. But still, there's some truth to what he said, and rolling did become a central point of discussion in the years leading up to co-education, so much so that it was actually referenced in the Woody Committee report. In the report, they referred to rolling as the weekend question. I'll read an excerpt from the Woody Committee report, which I've edited for clarity. The 18 to 22 age range is the time of life when the sexual consciousness of young men and women is at its peak, and when the companionship of the opposite sex is most necessary for the normal development of the maturing process. The pattern of life consisting of five socially abstemious days followed by the wild frenzy of the weekend would be modified by the presence of more young women on grounds. Men's primary experience with women had been through rolling, which meant that, by and large, they were not used to interacting with them as classmates, acquaintances, or even as friends. Gender dynamics were skewed and the university wanted to change that. So that actually became one of the primary arguments for coeducation, that it would allow men to have normal, non-sexual experiences with women that would be healthy for both sexes, developmentally and emotionally. But there were also other, more unique reasons for solving the weekend question. The Woody Committee actually wrote in its official report that rolling benefited wealthy men who had access to cars and could therefore take the trip down to the women's colleges. These wealthy men could also afford to take women out and buy them expensive wine and a nice meal. The report said that this disadvantaged lower-income men who didn't have access to the same resources and couldn't afford to take these types of weekend trips. Basically, the Woody Committee is advancing a class critique of rolling and saying that by co-educating, the university could democratize access to women. And implicit in this statement is democratizing sexual access to women. One student even argued that rolling amounted to legal prostitution, quote-unquote, because men would spend so much money on the women that they would basically feel obligated to sleep with him, or so it was said. This is kind of a stretch. But to reiterate, the main reason why people critiqued rolling was because they thought it prevented fuller and richer relationships between men and women from developing. And in this regard, the critiques are valid. 
All this discussion about the week in question and rolling made me wonder, how did the men treat women when they arrived? Did women become embedded in their daily lives like the way the Woody Committee had hoped? Or were men reluctant to accept women as their peers? To find the answers to these questions, I talked to some women from the first coeducational class. The first day when we were moving in, uh, they were literally assembled outside of our dorm, which uh, in my case had been built specifically to house both men and women after coeducation and had big glass windows and they were just staring for long periods of time in the window. So we felt like we were part of a zoo. Uh, five different guys came to my roommate's room and that was their opening line. Hi, I used to live in this room or I lived in this room two years ago or I lived in this room last year. After we got to the fifth guy, we we're like, oh yeah, we better wake up. This is not, <laughs> none of these guys lived in this room. <laughs> I, I was just sitting in my freshman year in the cafeteria and a man came up to me who I barely knew and asked if he could sit at my table. And in the course of our casual conversation, he asked me if I was on birth control. And my jaw just dropped because I didn't know how to answer a personal question like that. And then uh, after some silence, he said, well, you should be. And uh, that pretty much stopped the conversation. You just heard two different voices. Paulette Morant, who we heard from in the last episode, and another woman from the class of 74 who preferred to remain anonymous. So, from their experiences, it's clear that men, especially the upperclassmen, were still getting used to women's presence at the university. And as the birth control story shows, some didn't know how to interact with them in a normal way quite just yet. But despite these few instances, most women who I spoke to did not feel like they were overtly sexualized or objectified by the men. They described more so feeling like they were an object of curiosity. And that curiosity eventually faded away as men became more accustomed to seeing their female peers inside and outside the classroom. On the same note, the women said that they generally didn't feel like they experienced any discrimination from their professors. Again, cultural attitudes had changed a lot during this time period, which allowed for a somewhat easier transition for women. So when women arrived on grounds, many people thought that rolling would fizzle out. But this actually didn't happen. I asked Betty why she thought that was. Oh, because they had such a good time getting drunk going up the road. It was a party. I mean, they were afraid of the women that were going to school with them. They, you know, they, they wanted to go somewhere else and walk in and impress somebody and bring them to UVA for the weekend. To, I mean, it was very impressive. If, if you went to class with them every day, then, you know, there was no, no, I don't think it slowed down. It was still a very popular thing to do even once Paulette's class came in. We so, were very insulted. We thought that meant, oh, we're not good enough for you all to stick around? Oh, well, all right. That was Blake and Paulette Morant. The fact that rolling continued didn't mean that relationships between men and women didn't change. Uh, at least from my vantage point as a male, I think that many of the men who came in with me saw the women as equals, that, you know, these were sort of students like we, we're all here. And that's not to say they didn't have stereotypical views of women. I'm not saying that, but I'm just saying in terms of them being 
a student at the university. They felt that way. What I thought were the upper class folks who had been there prior to the time that women were admitted. And I think the adjustment for them was really much tougher. Mm -hmm. And many of them were resistant. Well, I won't, I may be overstating this a bit. They were much more suspicious Mm -hmm. of this in Mm -hmm. terms of how will this change the university? Mm -hmm. What about our customs? Remember from the first episode that it was the upperclassmen who helped author the honor committee study, which found that women would threaten the academic integrity of the university. The culture of UVA, that it was a school for Southern gentlemen, was very entrenched in the minds of these people, even though there was rarely ever overt hostility to women. But there were specific segments of UVA where women did not feel like they were treated equally to men. One of these was in women's sports. Paulette was on the field hockey team, and she speaks about her experience. Trying to get guys to come to a field hockey club game in 1971 is not happening. Trying to get guys to come to a women's basketball game, uh, club level, we hadn't quite gotten to intercollegiate till 1973. Yeah, we asked our friends. We didn't really have boyfriends, but we said, let's ask the guys in our class. Let's ask people we know, random guys, come to this game. We couldn't do it. The guy who was the sports editor of the uh, Cavalier Daily, we love him now. Back then, he would write about the women's sports saying something like, this motley crew is led by. (laughs) And that was before the musical group Motley Crew became a real thing. So we're like, we're a motley crew? We didn't think that women's sports were being taken seriously at that point. It was an adjustment for even some other women. They're like, oh, really? We have a field hockey team? Like, yeah, I'm on it. When UVA co-educated, it decided that it wouldn't require clubs and organizations on grounds to admit women if they didn't want to. There were some clubs that had a reputation of being fairly inclusive towards women, like the Cavalier Daily. But there was one club that was not particularly friendly to the new women, and that was the Jefferson Literary and Debating Society, what UVA students now call JeffSoc, but what people at the time called the Jeff Society. For those non-UVA people listening, Jeff Sock is considered a highly selective and prestigious debating club at the university. It's also the oldest student organization at UVA. Barbara Lynn is a chief United States district judge in a district court in Texas. She was in the first co-educational class and graduated in 1973. When she was a student, she wanted to join Jeff Sock, but she couldn't because their bylaws prohibited women from joining. When I got there, I didn't know that the organizations weren't co-ed too. I mean, I just, and I think probably most people assumed, well, if they're co-educating the university, they're not going to let the clubs of the university not be co-ed. I mean, I didn't, I thought the only thing that wouldn't be co-ed would be a fraternity. So that was just shocking. When I got there, my husband, you know, I started dating him and he told me about the Jeff Society. And I said, well, that sounds great. I'd love to join that. And then he had to say, well, you can't. And I, you know, I'm, my response was, well, what do you mean? You're kidding. I mean, I, I just, that never crossed my mind until I was actually there. Barbara's boyfriend at the time, and now husband, did something pretty iconic. To overturn the bylaws, he basically orchestrated a coup of sorts. I'll let her tell the story. My husband was the vice president, and the more conservative uh, opposed to coeducation, a uh, group went off to Mardi Gras. 
And my husband was the acting president in the absence of the president because he was the vice president. And he took a head count and called a special meeting uh, because he had a quorum and they voted to change the bylaws and to admit women. They changed the bylaws and then the other members came back and they were furious, but they did not have the two-thirds vote to change the bylaws back. So uh, that's how I was admitted. So he's always saying that I get the credit for being the first woman, but uh, he's the one who engineered it, and that's really true. Judge Barbara Lynn became the first woman to join the Jefferson Literary and Debating Society. She told me that she enjoyed the experience, and she felt respected when she was in the club, despite a rocky start. But she also said that JFSOC members asked her very embarrassing questions during the interview process. I asked her if she remembered any of them and if she would share them. I do, but I won't say them. I do, but I won't repeat them. They were really crass. Whatever you're imagining, it was worse. Um, So I'm not going to dignify those comments by repeating them. They were shockingly sort of sexual in, in nature, not threatening. They were not violent, nothing of of any violence, but they were very crude, designed to embarrass me and cause me to give up. I was a little bit embarrassed, although I didn't show it, but I wasn't going to give up. I wanted to be in the Deaf Society, and they wouldn't let me in for reasons that were wrong and unfair, and I was damn straight going to do what I could to change that. In the first episode, Ernie Earns said that he was looking for gritty women, women who could withstand a new cultural environment, who would hit the ground running despite opposition from people who clearly didn't want them there. When talking to Barbara Lynn, I saw the same grit that Ernie saw in her over 50 years ago. Let's not deny it, UVA should have admitted women sooner. 1970 was far too late. But unlike at other universities, UVA was pretty ready for these women. And these women were certainly ready for UVA. Now, women make up 55% of the UVA student population. This 55% represents different legacies. The legacy of leaders like Edgar Shannon and Ernie Earn, of Virginia Ann Ginger Scott and Ruth Bader Ginsburg. And of course, this 55% carries the legacy of the first class of women, of women like Paulette, Anne, Betty, and Barbara. This is Gritty Women, and I'm Giovanna de Oliveira. Thank you for listening. A big thank you to the women and men who I interviewed for this episode. Paulette Morant, Blake Morant, Betty McGee, Barbara Lynn, and the anonymous alumni. I would also like to thank my friend Adam Cooper, current fourth year at the University of Virginia, for reading for the voice of Richard O'Ryan. The music in this episode is Palms Down in the Cornice by Confectionary from Blue Dot Sessions. This podcast would not be possible without the help of Mary Garner McGee, producer and audio coordinator at WTJU. And finally, I would like to thank my thesis advisors, Sydney Milkus, Sarah Milov, and Kelsey Johnson for their constant support in this project. This podcast is a member of WTJU's Virginia Podcast Collective. You can check out their work at virginiaaudio.org. And again, 
Thank you for tuning in.